This is WHCL-FM, Clinton, New York. I'm Viva Horowitz. Welcome to Significant Figures. I'm here with my guest, Dr. Andrew Jones. So Andrew, welcome to Significant Figures. Hi, Viva. Thanks for the invitation. I'm really excited to talk about some of my work here. Now, you were previously at Hamilton College. That's how I know you. You were a visiting assistant professor of chemistry. And now you are at Miami University, which is in Ohio? It is, yes. We, uh, we're named after the Miami Indian tribe that uh, used to inhabit kind of this area. Um, we were a university before Florida was a state. Um, we often get confused with Miami, Florida. Um, our weather is not quite that good. Well, thank you so much for joining me. In your research, one of the things that you do in your research, I guess one of the main things is to use cells as biochemical factories to produce, well, what do you produce with cells? Yeah, so um, my area of research is in synthetic biology and metabolic engineering, right? And fundamentally, I like to think about how do we engineer simple microbial hosts to produce a whole range of, mainly in my case, high value compounds. Um, that involves kind of taking genetic pathways from a variety of different organisms around the like world and enabling that DNA to be translated and transcribed and translated um, in this bacteria in a way that it can kind of perform those functions of these other compounds that the organisms may be difficult to culture, they may be um, endangered, um, or we may have valuable products in the case of what most of the stuff I work with um, that might need to be produced at kind of very high volumes um, very quickly for use as a pharmaceutical drug or a commodity chemical or what have you. Um, there's many reasons we would need um, chemicals in the world. So it's, a, it's an alternate kind of strategy to your traditional organic synthesis for many things. So I imagine, I'm not a chemist, the traditional synthesis of chemicals is to mix different components and heat them up or do whatever needs to be done and so that they'll link together in just the right ways and create whatever chemical you want. How does using biology allow this to happen faster or more or better? Yeah, so um, the key here is that one science is not better than the other, right? But cer there's certain attributes to kind of a biological approach versus a chemical approach um, that can be advantageous. Um, for example, um, chemistry is really good with established reactions, right? But when you get into very large compounds with multiple stereocenters or kind of complex chemistries, these things are oftentimes really hard for synthetic chemists to figure out. They can pretty much figure out anything, right? But it might require really expensive catalysts or very toxic reagents or um, a variety of different things where biology has enzymes that have kind of evolved over millennia to um, perform specific chemistries that are going to be site-specific in nature. Um, they're going to be performed under kind of very neutral environments, right? Normal, like room temperatures frequently, um, not in kind of really acidic or really basic. It's just like better for the environment in many ways. Um, one such example is where biology kind of wins is in some of the recent work that I've done um, making the hallucinogenic molecule in psilocybin or in magic mushrooms called psilocybin. Um, it has a phosphate group hanging on it. Um, and biology has evolved over millennia to be really good at doing phosphate chemistry. And that's something that the synthetic chemists have really struggled with. Um, so 
we all know from our kind of basic biology, from our intro biology, that ATP is kind of the energy molecule in cells, um, and it gives away its energy by um, losing a phosphate, right? Um, so we have this efficient phosphate chemistry mechanism that pretty much all evolved life has, has learned to harness, right? And so I've, I've harnessed that ATP driving force, so that ATP um, energy molecule through a kinase that's naturally found in the mushroom to perform that phosphate chemistry for me. Um, so that's one thing that gives my kind of biological system an advantage. It's because I, I have a product that's specifically been like selected to be good for kind of a biological synthesis route, right? If I was trying to compete um, with a, uh, on like a commodity chemical, like a fuel, a biofuel, um, those are going to be very difficult um, to make any kind of specialty fuels, let's say. Maybe fermentation is used for a lot of ethanol production from corn. Um, certainly that's something that yeast has been doing for a long time. Um, but if I wanted to make, let's say, butanol from uh, a microorganism, that's something that has been done and it's been somewhat efficient. Um, but it's much more difficult to compete with kind of traditional oil-based approaches to making some of these more simple molecules. Okay, so there's some chemicals that you're going to have one approach to making them. There's some chemicals you'll have another. In some cases, you could take multiple different approaches, but one is clearly better for that molecule. You said site-specific. So in biology, I kind of picture everything as being a jigsaw puzzle and just I, I assume that the fact that enzymes are site-specific means that they fit correctly only into specific sites. Yeah, so when we think about site-specific in the terms of kind of chemical synthesis, right, um, it would be the difference between if you're going to try to add a hydroxyl group as your puzzle piece, right, that's going to stick. If it sticks in a four position, right, you might get compound A, but if it sticks in the fifth position on this ring, it would be compound B, which might have different bioactivities or different um, end uses. Um, so the idea is that with organic chemistry, it's sometimes very difficult to get specific positions um, for that chemistry, right? You could add an oxidizing agent that's going to um, perform a specific oxidation or reduction um, chemistry on your um, molecule, but that um, the specific, the site at which it does that is sometimes difficult to tailor. Um, where an enzyme is kind of evolved to kind of, I don't know, you can almost think about it, it hugs a molecule in a way in the active site, and then it catalyzes chemistry at a specific location. Um, so oftentimes if we're trying to, I like to think about it oftentimes as decorating. You take a core molecule and you add your kind of puzzle pieces or your decorations um, at different positions in that molecule. Um, biology is very good at those site-specific decorations without the need for what they call protecting groups, right? When you add complex side chains um, to kind of block chemistries from happening at a certain spot. And then you have to do more chemistry to remove those protecting groups. Um, so you can avoid many of those steps with um, biological routes towards kind of chemical production. I've heard it said that biology is nanorobots that work. <laughs> well, I don't know if it always works, but we could, um, we could, we could hope. Sometimes I, I'm, I'm doing things in the lab that I'm just like, man, this should work. And it's it just frustrating as I'll get out. So sometimes I think the nanorobots are probably making headway on biology, but um, I, I don't, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that it always works, but I do think that it's pretty interesting that um, oftentimes biology can work without you knowing how it works. And, and I think that's makes something that's unique 
uh, maybe to some areas of physics that uh, sometimes you have to understand all the fundamentals of how it goes together. And then finally, the, the instrument starts working or the piece starts um, going. And sometimes our biology just works. And sometimes we spend a whole PhD trying to figure out how, why it's doing what it's doing or, or how it's able to accomplish this feat that we can observe but don't understand. So I think that's a, an interesting thing about biology that kind of is exciting to me. So tell me about some of the feats you have been able to accomplish. Yeah, sure. Um, so I've made a wide variety of different molecules. Some of them are because it's fun and academically interesting, and some of them have um, good commercial uh, potential. Um, I started out my work in graduate school looking at a variety of amino acid derived molecules um, in the flavonoid space. So these are going to be many of your antioxidant compounds that you find in your fruits and vegetables. Um, those molecules um, are in market for that was like a food additive um, in a way that you could, when you have processed foods, oftentimes you lose many of those antioxidant properties and the, the difference between your a processed food and a, uh, a fresh food. Uh, and the question was, could we have some of those molecules, add them back in through the process to kind of give your processed foods a, a, a better a boost, right? Or maybe they're a supplement that you could take to kind of um, help with uh, kind of getting all of these um, natural molecules that maybe you're missing because of your diet. Um, I then have worked with um, a, a similar molecule, a similar pathway, an extension of the flavonoid pathway goes into anthocyanins, um, which are antioxidant compounds that are colored in many ways. Um, and I always envisioned if we could make those um, like, one example is um, pelagronidin, which is a, com a complex structure and a complex name, frankly. Uh, but it's one of the antioxidants and color molecules that you find in um, strawberries. So it's a red. And I always envisioned, like, could we um, replace red number five in some food, right? I don't know, maybe a frozen lasagna or something, right? If you wanted it to have a, a red sauce, maybe you could supplement it with some of these other more natural compounds that are uh, maybe don't have the health benefits side effects. What was the name of that chemical again? Pelagronidin. It's one of the, I think there's two main ones. That red. Colors. Yeah, that's one interesting compound that I made. And I, it, the compound had been made before, um, but the way I made it was different, right? I was able to, I was the first person that had made that compound completely from glucose in a uh, microbial co-culture. So instead of having one microbe that's doing your kind of work, right? I split the whole pathway up over four different um, in four different genetically engineered cells that all grew together and they all worked together to make this compound. So they passed metabolites through um, all four strains to get to the, the final product. So that was a pretty fun work that I worked on kind of at the end of my um, PhD and finished it up while I was actually at Hamilton in 2017. Um, and then, so since I've started my kind of independent career here at Miami University, I've um, started to work in um, what I see as one of the more exciting areas of, that I've ever worked in. Um, and this is kind of working on psychedelic medicine. So how can I um, make compounds that have really high bioactivities and high potential to meet kind of a great need um, that exists in the world? Um, that's struggle, people struggling with mental illness. So I started that work soon after I started at Miami in fall 2017. And a couple of years ago, I, I published our first paper where we made psilocybin, which is the magic mushroom psychedelic. 
I don't know if our audience might be familiar with the the medical side of psychedelics. Maybe yeah, absolutely. You can talk a little bit more about the benefits. It became illegal to use certain psychedelics in the '60s, I think. So, yeah. for so yeah, I can talk a little bit about that for sure. Uh, my research focuses mainly. Wait, what was that? For most of our lives, this has been a banned substance. Still is. Um, so the idea here is that. Um, psychedelics were kind of the, the war on drugs in the 60s and 70s made psychedelics illegal. They put them in this category as a, a schedule one drug saying that it has no medical benefit and they're highly addictive is kind of the definition there. Neither of those statements are necessarily true and we're working to kind of fix that. But what's been shown is that as we, as the federal government and many other places around the world have started to kind of loosen the restrictions on research into these drugs, um, they're starting to realize that Many people who were using these drugs recreationally, illegally, um, were kind of noting this, they were using them to kind of self-medicate from any mental illnesses that they were having. And so we're starting to look into that into a true clinical perspective. And the, the clinical trials are still ongoing. There are multiple of them, but there's some pretty exciting results there. Um, people are using psilocybin to um, investigate its efficacy towards depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, addiction. Uh, there's even some going into Alzheimer's disease, um, which again, they're very preliminary, um, but some of the furthest ones that are along are depression and anxiety. Um, Focus primarily in some of the clinical work with humans has been in patients who are struggling with depression associated with a terminal cancer diagnosis, right? And they're finding that this is not a population that feels like they can take medication on kind of a daily basis. They can't remember to take their kind of traditional antidepressants um, in a daily fashion. But psilocybin is interesting because one psilocybin treatment, right? And we'll talk more about what that treatment looks like here in a minute, but it's been shown to last for months, right? So you only have this one hallucinogenic experience, right? And while being guided by a trained psychiatrist that can kind of help you unpack what you're, what you're thinking about in that mental state that allows the kind of reformation of um, connections. And it kind of changes your priorities. It makes you not worried or depressed about the, the certain thing that was ailing you. And it's showing better efficacy than many, um, equivalent or better efficacy than many antidepressants that are on the market um, because it's used less frequently. Um, it has potential to work in patient populations that are often forgetful or um, don't like the way that current antidepressants kind of change their mood and their behavior. Um, because psilocybin, um, you don't really, you don't see those side effects. Um, it's very safe. Um, so it's some really cool things. That are going I, I on do there. feel morally bound though. Do you know of populations for which psychedelics are counterindicated? would not be recommended? Yeah, there, there are some. I, I'm not a medical doctor. I don't need to get into too much of that, but there have been, but what I can comment on is when you look at the ongoing clinical trials, oftentimes they exclude certain patient populations, right? For one reason or another. Um, and oftentimes um, those are not seen as great fits um, for people that are pregnant for say, or that because there's so many unknowns, also people that don't have a lot of uh, mental stability right? 
yeah, uh, so there, there are some, some populations where it's not a good fit. And I think many of the clinical trials that are going on right now are looking to try to understand that more, right? Like who would this be a good fit for, right? What types of patient populations are the, are the best fit? But yeah, I, I, there are medical doctors that could speak to that uh, much more succinctly than I could. But yeah, so I think that's what's exciting to me is that as a college professor, and I, I, I would argue to say you've probably seen it as well. One thing that has shocked me is the, it seems like growing amount of young people that really struggle with depression and anxiety and how it affects their schoolwork and the ways that I interact with them. And there's been some studies that show that people that struggle with depression have kind of lifetime kind of, especially in their childhood, if they struggle, they have like kind of lifetime effects of that. There's um, some stats that I found um, interesting is that one in four people in the U.S. have a diagnosable mental health disorder that could potentially be treated with psilocybin, right? Potentially, we're still evaluating that. But out of that 25% of the population that struggles with that, they have a 10-year shorter lifespan than the other three-quarters of the population, right? That's the equivalent of smoking, right? Like smoking takes about 10 years off your life. Um, so struggling with a, a mental illness is is should be seen in the same way that smoking would be is something that are you we saying could... that one in four people in this country has a mental illness or are you saying that one in four people in this country could be treated with a psychedelic i'm saying one in four people in this country have a diagnose what's called a diagnosable mental health disorder right where depression and anxiety are the biggest slice of that pie um, and then the rest kind of fill in I, i'm not saying that all of those are well-suited for a psilocybin treatment or a psychedelics treatment. There are many other um, mentally active drugs that are being looked into, DMT, ecstasy, MDMA as well. But what I, I guess what shocks me is like how prevalent, prevalent this is, and it's starting to be talked about more and more, um, but it is something that I don't know that we have a good, we haven't had a new paradigm in mental health treatment in a long time right? The currently, the, the, let's say Prozac is one of many uh, antidepressants. Um, it works for a lot of people, right? But it's not a good fit for many. Um, I think out of another stat was that about, about one in four, right? One in, like, so one in four struggle with some type of mental health disorder, right? Whether that's an acute struggle or a, a chronic struggle. Um, and then about a quarter of those people, right, are, um, have unmet mental health needs, right? It's the ones that have tried treatments and not found one that works well for them, right? It, um, that percentage goes way up in the adolescent categories, right? Our young people. Um, oftentimes you see a lot more suicidality for people that come on um, antidepressants. And that's something that I'm hoping that psychedelics being a different mechanism of action, a, a different, a, a fundamentally different way to treat this drug could hopefully help some of those people who have not found the help they need with current treatments. And that's what excites me, right? Like that's what I've always looked for something that was projects in my research lab that I felt like could have an impact. I didn't get that with some of the early projects that I uh, made trying to make a food additive or some type of commodity chemical that doesn't work trying to utilize methanol to produce higher value um, biofuels, those types of things. I didn't get the excitement at, 
out of it that I feel like some of my research in this space could potentially bring, right? I think I could actually help people. Um, we've, some of the recent work that I published um, caught a lot of attention from industry and um, we've started a company outside um, from this work. Um, the company is called Cybiotherapeutics. Um, they are looking to commercialize some of our, some of my work um, to result in the commercial manufacture of drugs to enable the clinical studies um, and preclinical work um, that will exist or that's uh, kind of currently ongoing. There's a, because of the limitations and the um, preconceived notions, I guess you could think of from psychedelics as a whole, oftentimes it's very difficult. There's a lot of paperwork at the federal level to get approval to um, work with these to synthesize or make these drugs for um, these clinical studies. Um, so the, this company that's licensed my technology um, is working in that space and one of the, kind of the, the front leaders, front runners um, in that. So you're, you are a professor, but you're also commercializing the work that you're doing. Um, so this, is, this must be a process of kind of balancing between the academic world and the commercial world. Yeah, there's definitely um, two hats you have to wear there. Um, it's, um, there's, I, I, I'm an academic at heart, right? I, I want to learn and discover as many things as I can, but I also realized fairly early in some of the communications with people interested in marketing this is that the only way that this research is gonna get out of the lab and be able to actually help the people that I, I want it to help um, is if I have somebody that, can raise money and fund these efforts to get it outside of the lab. And I think it's that interplay between industry, um, academia collaborations, right? They're supporting research in my lab to further develop the technology, but they're also taking that technology to a step at kind of commercial level, right? And thinking about um, ultimately using it um, to support clinical trials in the future. Um, those are steps that I can't take as an academic right? It's beyond the scope of my um, skill set and um, time, right? It's, um, so I'm focusing my research on developing technologies that can improve uh, our biosynthesis approaches, right? And better understand them um, and characterize them. And I'm working closely with this company to facilitate their tech transfer efforts and getting this work to where it can actually make the impact in society. So it's really that trade-off where you have to where I think the really impactful work happens. Well, yeah, because if it's coming out of a university, it's not going to end up on the shelves until until you've done that. You said tech transfer. This is this mm -hmm. term for, for the technology going from the lab to the shelves. Yeah, how do we go from the lab bench to a commercial facility that can make it under um, controlled conditions and have reproducible, everything, quality control, quality assurance through the whole process um, and establish a, a packet of manufacturing that can then go to the FDA for approval that says you, are, you can reliably use your process to produce the drug. These are all things that are kind of beyond the scope of an academic lab, um, but some things that are very necessary before you could ever realize the like true potential of the work. So is it pretty recent that these kinds of drugs have been approved for research? I think you mentioned that there's been some loosening there. Yeah, so it's it started to become more loose, and I think maybe it's been driven by um, public perception, I think is changing as well, and that's um, enabling this to uh, be 
talked about more and considered more by um, the DEA. Let's see, most of the work that's been happening, um, it started with a few kind of key labs, maybe five or six years ago, they started working a lot. They've always worked in psychedelics, but they started picking up steam. If you Google psychedelic, psychedelic centers, right, places where they're doing a significant focus of psychedelic research, um, you'll start to see really big names that have popped up in the last like two or three years, right? Johns Hopkins has started one. Um, NYU has started one. There's a couple on the West Coast as well. Um, they're starting to kind of collect people that are doing psychedelic related work. Um, not as many kind of in the production side and that manufacturing aspect that I, that as an engineer, I bring to the table, um, but many psychologists and psychiatrists, people doing um, preclinical and clinical work to better understand mechanisms and proper dosing schemes and how to manage it, um, how to look at set and setting, which is um, really important for psychedelics. That's your mindset going into the process, right? Because if you think it's going to work, it has a better chance of working, right? And the setting in which you take it in, right? That all influences the, how the impact of this drug works, right? Which is very important for psychedelics. And one of the reasons that I think that a prescription pharmaceutical route is, the, is best suited for these drugs, not a recreational route as you see um, like cannabis um, taking in many cases. And it's because if you give these in a controlled environment, they work better. And I think that's something that isn't well understood yet. And I think it, I think we're very lucky that all drugs don't work that way, right? If you had to, um, if you had to be in the right room in the right setting uh, to take your Tylenol for a headache, that would be kind of unfortunate, I think. Um, but understanding that connection for psychedelics is something that a lot of people are working with now. There's, There's definitely a placebo effect, though, with with drugs that are active. For example, I've heard, for example, with sleeping pills, the color matters. I, yeah, no, placebo is certainly a thing. And I, I think that there's there's that higher level um, interactions that it, it, in general, if you believe things are going to work, they, they, they frequently do. I, I can't speak to it. I, I don't have all the stats to um, back that up necessarily. But I do think that psychedelics are unique in the level of impact that those factors play in their administration. And that's something that we don't understand really well now. Um, and that's one thing that I think is going to be important to understand before these drugs become kind of open for prescription for kind of anyone. I, I think for me personally, the idea of taking a drug that removes me from reality is in many ways terrifying. And I think it would be hard for me to go into a therapeutic session and take a psychedelic drug and trust that this was going to be fine because while I'm totally used to dreaming, I'm, I'm completely comfortable with the idea that every night I, my head hits the pillow and I start hallucinating and this is just normal. I'm not comfortable with that joining me in the waking world. No, I, I, I share your same um, hesitancy, right? I, I like to be in control of things. I like to I feel like I um, can wake up from it um, whenever I would want to. I also <laughs> don't want to believe falsehoods. I don't want to see what's not there, hear what's mm -hmm. not heard. I, I want to be in the same world as everyone else. And, and I, I think that's one thing that's driving some of my research. And um, I'm not sure that it's, it's still undetermined whether the psychedelic experience that you go through, that hallucinogenic experience, is connected to the positive 
mental health benefits that you see from these drugs. We're trying to find ways to disconnect those two. And so that's what some of my more recent work is going into where I'm working at taking the platform that I developed to produce psilocybin, right? To look at a variety of other compounds that are similar in structure, right? And might have some similar kind of bioactivity act in similar mechanisms, right? But trying to, but have slightly different kind of modifications to the structure. Um, and we're starting to evaluate those in rodents to look for, are they giving a psychedelic experience? And do we see this antidepressant efficacy, right? In rodent models of disease. And that's with some, one of my collaborators. And so we're looking for that kind of magic that gives you a pill that would not cause a psychedelic adventure, but allows for that kind of remodeling of your brain. Yep. How do you know that your rodent is having a hallucination? Yeah. So um, these are questions I was asking when I first was building this collaboration, because how do you know, right? So when rodents, so hallucinations happen, um, through the activation of the 5-HT2A receptor in the brain. And when that happens in rodents, they give off what's called a head twitch, right? Or oftentimes referred to as a wet dog shake. So it's like a specific type of like head shake at a certain frequency. And there's a few ways you can measure that. One, you can um, score video, like they video the, the we do our start work in rats. Um, they video the rat and they can kind of count how many times these things happen in a period after you administer the drug. Um, they happen, um, there's, there's a low basal level that they kind of are observed. And then when you get these drugs that hallucinate, um, you get a much higher kind of head twitch count um, in a certain amount of time. And the way that we're doing it is a little less subjective is that we're doing a, a light surgery that allows you to affix a magnet to the top of the, the rat's head. And we're putting it in a container that has coils of wire, right? Um, and then when the magnetic field moves in the electric, in the electric field or in the in the coil of wire, you get the kind of electric electric field generated, and you can process that signal to auto detect these head twitches. You're you're looking for for twitches. You're not looking for some specific neuron to fire. Nope. Yeah. So it's just that kind of physical head twitch that they elicit in when they're having that um, psychedelic experience. So it's a it's a proxy, but it's been shown time and time again to be consistent. Humans don't twitch their head when they experience psychedelics. No, it's a little different for humans. So you can ask humans if they're hallucinating though. Yeah, so there's many animals that do that. I think all rodents to some extent have this head twitch on psychedelics. Yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to speak to other animals because again, I'm not running these studies. I have a collaborator that's working with that, but I'm learning a lot about how these um, systems are validated. You can ask the same question about how do you know if a rat's depressed, right? Like, yeah. Um, so there's a variety of different tests to think about um, these rodent models of variety of kind of neurological diseases. They effectively can put these rodents in a, I don't know, I misspoke on the, on the radio, but they can put these uh, rodents in uh, water, right? And a depressed rat will tread water for less time than a non-depressed rat, effectively. And they, they don't die, you pick them up, right? But you can kind of monitor how active they are. And, and that's a good, it doesn't, again, it's not like a direct measure of depression in the way that it's hard to even measure that in humans, honestly.
but it is, um, there's a correlation there. And I think the correlation is oftentimes it's that current drugs that we have that have any depressant efficacy show an effect in this particular rodent model, right? And time and time again, they've shown that. So now we can test new exploratory drugs and look for that same effect, indicating that there may be a potential. These um, pitiable rodents, do they become depressed? I, I mean, are most rodents depressed or are they just depressed because they're in cages? Uh, no, there's, um, maybe we don't want to get into the details of how you do that, but there, there are a variety of uh, mechanisms. Okay. Yeah, so I, don't want, I don't want to misspeak and uh, be on, so on air forever. Depressed um, rodents and then you can give them psychedelics and perhaps afterwards. And you can see effects immediately, right? And then you can also test with time to see kind of when that, how the effects change with time. And you're interested in seeing if you can produce a chemical that is similar enough to psilocybin that it would have the positive effect on the, on the depression, but no hallucinations, which you can tell because it wouldn't have the head twitch. Yeah, so we're looking for a variety of different things. We, it's still unknown. There's some, in the literature, there's some kind of hypotheses both ways, um, but that'd be the holy grail, right? If we could give, if we could find a compound that has a different mechanism of action for, let's say depression, um, works in a different way, offers up a new opportunity for treatment, right? But it doesn't have the big major side effect, right, of this, six hour hallucinogenic experience. That's our holy grail. That's a great drug, right? The biggest side effect now from psychedelics is the hallucinogenic experience that's- It depends um, on whether you want to call that the side effect or the main goal, which for recreation- We don't know, right? We don't know if it, what it is right now. That's what's holding back, I think, a lot of many, much of the public that is not pro-psychedelics. And if they, if we had a similar molecule that acted in the same mechanism, but didn't have this kind of long psychedelic experience, right? I think it would be more acceptable. That compound would probably not be scheduled. It would make a lot of legal paperwork easier, those types of things. So we're looking for some of those kind of. Spoken like a scientist who's filled out a lot of legal paperwork. I did. Yes. I'm sure. <laughs> oh, so much. The idea of teasing apart the therapeutic part and the hallucinogenic part is it's actually surprising to me because I think I had this mental model that to some extent depression is a little bit too much of a dose of reality. And I and I, I don't I'm not an expert on this, but I, I guess I, I had this idea that maybe that break from reality provided by a hallucinogenic experience was precisely the piece, and maybe it's not, but I thought it was precisely the piece that allows somebody to say, yeah, reality is terrible and difficult, but I don't have to be fully attached to reality. I can, I can separate myself and have that, that bit of distance from reality. And knowing that makes everything about reality a little easier to cope with. Yep. And, and I think that right there is what's changing, right? I think 10 years ago, we probably all would have thought that was maybe the mechanism of action, but there's been some. Um, My mom could be completely wrong. 
yeah, it, we're, there's some more, there's some interesting studies and I, I can't speak to the details of them. They're kind of outside of my area of expertise, but the, the summaries that I've heard from people that are in their expertise is that maybe we shouldn't consider it that way. Maybe there is a better solution. Maybe there is a, a, a disjoining of those two kind of phenomena. That's really exciting. Let's jump back into your expertise. You are trying to produce this chemical somehow that is not the hallucinogen, but is the therapeutic part. Where do you even begin? It's uh, more or less random. I don't really have a, sometimes I start with a targeted molecule and I say, I'm trying to make X, right? This time I've started with a, a platform that makes psilocybin really well, right? But then I look at the psilocybin structure, right? And I, I identify key functional groups, whether those are methyl groups or hydroxyls or others that I can kind of, so methyl groups that I could take away to make similar kind of core structures with modified um, substituents, or I look at um, molecules or chemistries that I can, mainly I'm focusing on bio, but this is also a place where chemical synthesis can benefit. Right? I could take my psilocybin-derived molecule and I could, um, for instance, there's been some published work where you can take psilocybin and you can add an extra methyl group um, using chemistry really easily. Um, so I can think about ways that I can integrate kind of traditional synthetic chemistry with my biosynthesis approach to make new compounds. New, like Some of them are new to me. Some of them are new to nature in general. Um, and then we just start testing. right? And that's the benefit of having the collaborator that's doing the kind of animal validation. Right. If I can make a, and purify a few milligrams even of these compounds, that's enough to get some kind of preliminary validation of are these molecules in eliciting the head twitch response in these rodents? Do they have efficacy in kind of a basic um, animal model of some disease? Um, and so we can start to look at that and start to identify key molecules, right? And if we, we find one that looks promising, right? We will go down that route. Maybe I'll start making derivatives of that molecule or I'll start developing technologies that are more efficient at producing that molecule. And, but we might also, we've also screened some drugs and we look at them and we're like, this doesn't seem to be doing anything. We don't see any value there. Um, and that allows me to kind of slow down that aspect of research and focus towards um, different modifications. Um, so I don't really have a game plan, right? I, I'm just looking at all available technologies. I'm looking at things that um, can work better or worse than others. Um, I'm also looking to nature to look at what molecules exist in um, plants that people have maybe used religiously or ceremonially um, over the over history, right? To get some type of benefit. Um, that's off, that's where psilocybin started. Um, I'm looking into the natural, like the mushrooms that produce psilocybin also produce a wide range of other uh, metabolites that most likely interfere or interact with psilocybin in a way kind of in the body to see if we can come up with some of those molecules, like learning from nature, maybe um, when people take mushrooms and get this benefit, right, that maybe the psychedelic aspect comes from psilocybin and there's something else that's um, providing um, different interesting bioactivities. Um, so I think that's where the, the fun comes is I can just, the sky's the limit. I can pick a lot of different types of compounds and different chemistries and evaluate them. So um, you said that you have a platform for synthesizing psilocybin and it's it's not a mushroom. Is it, is it yeast? 
Bacteria. Bacteria. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So it's E. coli bacteria. Um, not quite the one that shows up at Chipotle on the regular, but. So why use bacteria when you could use a mushroom that naturally produces this chemical? Absolutely. The key is that E. coli is the most well-studied organism on earth. We can pretty much do any type of genetic manipulation to it that we want, right? I can modify it. I can scale it up really efficiently. Like we've established ways for large scale fermentation of these model microbes uh, to be kind of very reproducible. And we can go from bench scale at one liter to hundred thousand liters um, relatively quickly. And we have a, we have a history of success with that. It's very reproducible and it's something that can be controlled or have established control techniques. When we think about mushrooms, right, growing kind of fields of mushrooms, they're, they're very finicky, right? They're not as well-studied of an organism. We don't understand all the details on how to cultivate these things. Certainly they can be cultivated. They are uh, frequently cultivated, um, but they are very sensitive to environmental changes, right? Changes in your humidity or your lighting or your substrate that you grow it on or the time of year. These all change, make huge changes in the metabolite profile of these mushrooms. One of the big advantages for my, or disadvantages for fungal systems, which is mushrooms as well as yeast that have been used for psilocybin production, is that they don't see really high product stability, right? These molecules, when you, like a mushroom, when you bruise it, right, you, there's this um, bluing reaction, they call it, um, and it's a degradation reaction that takes the psilocybin and breaks it down, and it actually turns to a blue color, and that's why it's called the, the bluing reaction. Um, so there's native enzymes in these kind of fungal hosts that are there to break down these compounds into a variety of different molecules. And those don't exist in my engineered bacterial host because bacteria has never seen psilocybin before. It doesn't know that it needs to be able to degrade it. Um, Do we know why magic shrooms produce a hallucinogen and why they have enzymes to break it down as well? Nobody knows. Um, I, I think that the most realistic reason that these mushrooms produce this is probably from a defense mechanism, right? You can imagine a, a, a deer coming by and munching on this mushroom and not wanting to do it again. There's the, there's the disincentive, but obviously there's also the incentive. So I, I guess it depends. I think humans are probably the only ones that are incentivized by that in general. But no, I, I agree that uh, I think that's a, something that's still yet to be fully understood if we ever really understand it. You know, I've been thinking about what you said about just trying everything, just, just you have the, the full chemical and you know that works to alleviate depression or there's people testing it and the results are looking very promising. And then you're looking for some, some alternative that would have the therapeutic effects without the psychedelic effects. You must have a team of people working on this. Can you tell me about your scientific team? Yeah, so um, my team is growing uh, more every day, it feels like. I, I think now I'm up to 16 or so students and staff in the lab. And that's a mix of professional staff, graduate students, and undergraduates um, that are doing a lot of the work. I, I really I pride myself on working with undergraduates. The lead author on that the main psilocybin publication from a few years ago was a um, junior undergraduate at the time. Um, that's something that is uh, really exciting to me is to work with kind of younger students. 
Um, and many of my undergraduates have started to stick around for a master's program we have in our department, kind of a, a four plus one program where they can hang around for an extra year, kind of get really more, more engaged in the research and get a master's degree out of that before they go on into mainly industries where engineers go. I guess you kind of give each person a, here, try, try this and see what happens. <laughs> you don't have a total game plan is what, what I'm hearing. Yeah, and so we have a wide variety of, so just one aspect of my research is looking for these new and novel kind of molecules and evaluating kind of what is possible with our technology and um, what areas are, are better suited for other technologies. Um, but we also are looking at um, ways to improve psilocybin production, thinking about enabling psilocybin production. Right now we feed a, a precursor molecule, right? But we're looking to be able to make psilocybin completely from basic components, right? Things like glucose and ammonia salts and phosphate salts. If we can kind of engineer it from that, right, that enables um, a technology that is not really dependent on this specialty compound that we're going to make. Um, that compound is not as expensive as some people on the internet claim, um, but it does pose another kind of level of difficulty in the kind of biosynthesis process, um, which is interesting. And then we, I'm also looking at a variety of different pathways that aren't tryptamine related. I have some students working on projects in that space, as well as looking at improving the current process, right? When we think about, it's not just a set it in a petri dish and it grows, right? It, it, there's, a, there's a whole kind of engineered process surrounding it, um, thinking about the best optimization conditions um, that can be used to kind of let these strains that we're developing kind of show their kind of um, best production. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a wide variety of projects that we're working on. Um, looking at kind of general theme is making either more of a product that we're already making or uh, making new products that um, have yet to be evaluated. We have about 10 minutes left. Okay. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, I, there's one thing I'd like to talk about, and it's a paper that was just accepted last week. And it's going to be published in a journal called Bioengineered. And one thing that I think is interesting is uh, after we published our psilocybin work, I started kind of reading some of the interweb blogs and Reddit, for example, of people talking about kind of the technology and seeing kind of what they were thinking of. And there was a central theme that came through uh, many of these things. And it was um, if we can get a hold of this strain or if we can create this strain on our own, right, we can now homebrew psychedelics, which is something that um, personally, I, I don't know that that's the best route forward, but I was interested, like our technology uses a lot of specialized equipment to facilitate the um, biosynthesis of psilocybin. And so I said, let's, let's do it. Let's make a study where we, um, try to homebrew it, try to make, take our, ends, take our production host and grow it under conditions that would mimic something that someone could do in their garage, like Breaking Bad style. Did you tell the company you're working with that you were gonna give away all the secrets first? Yeah, uh, well, I, I can't say I gave away all the secrets, right? My goal was not to make a homebrew um, how-to guide, right? My, my, my goal with this work was to um, demonstrate that it would be possible to biosynthesize psilocybin under kind of less rigorous, less sterile, less um, like complicated conditions. 
And for that to motivate discussions around what's the best way to regulate this technology, right? Because um, right now, you the psilocybin drug that you make is regulated, right? Um, but the precursors you use to produce that compound, nor the strain, are regulated. Um, so um, in theory, I could pass the strain out, <laughs> and um, that would not be explicitly against the law, although there's some the caveats there. Um, but I'm looking at ways to kind of regulate that. Are you talking about the bacteria? The bacteria, yeah. So these are bacteria that you have altered in some way. Mm -hmm. Maybe we, we should talk about how you alter them. But bacteria you've altered in some way to produce psilocybin, and they are not a controlled substance because no one's ever made them illegal. Yeah, and they don't have, they have no psilocybin in them, right? They just have DNA that en encodes for the enzymes that can make it under the right conditions. Um, and it's as very similar, it's a very similar analogy to um, the mushroom spores, right? Oftentimes you can buy, like in many states, the mushroom spores are legal to purchase, right? That could grow the mushrooms that contain psilocybin. But until you've grown the mushrooms and that actually have measurable amounts of psilocybin, you oftentimes don't, um, they're, they're not illegal in many, in many states. Um, so it's a very analogous kind of process. So this paper that we just published that'll um, probably be online next two weeks, I think it was officially accepted on Friday. Um, we talk about kind of strategies for the different ways that which this process could be regulated, right? Do you focus on certain key substrates that are required for this biosynthesis, but that really only applies to kind of bacterial-based methods. There have been other yeast-based methods that um, wouldn't require that technology. Do you focus on um, controlling the strain that exists um, or how you, or when you synthesize this DNA at certain companies, right? Do they need to screen? Um, they already screen for um, compounds that have like, biological toxins and things like that, right? You, you can't start synthesizing the genome of Ebola or something, right? Like there's there's classic um, compounds that um, are not allowed to be biosynthesized, right? Should we add these kind of pathway enzymes that we're working with to that list? Um, are there other ways to kind of characterize and make sure that um, these clandestine operations aren't, aren't ongoing? Um, because we were in our proof of principle, we were able to show um, significant production of psilocybin, not as good as what we had published under our kind of laboratory um, equipment settings, um, but enough to kind of enable recreational use at a cost that was not prohibitive for um, the kind of average recreational user. So I think it is something for the first time, this biosynthesis technology has, um, it's, it's gotten to the point where we really need to start thinking about this. Before this time, like thinking about drugs that have been produced um, there's been a variety of opioids and cannabinoids that have been produced, but oftentimes they're such low quantities that you'd have to drink like 10,000 gallons of the broth to get enough to experience the kind of drug properties, um, where with my system, it's only a few milliliters of the broth um, that would get there. So now we've kind of um, opened up Pandora's box per se, right? And, and so my work is talking a lot about um, the policy that should be implemented in that space and how we can think about controlling or regulating this um, to not have it become a recreational um, endpoint, um, but still facilitating the research, right? We don't want to slow down research to potentially developing these compounds that could really give a lot of mental benefit to society.
Yeah. You know, when I think about homebrew, I also think about how with with distilling liquor, it's possible to create a moonshine that's actually quite toxic because it contains methanol. And when commercial entities create alcohol and liquors, they're very careful to avoid methanol, which, which can cause blindness. It's, it's really quite bad. Whereas if somebody is making it in their bathtub, then they might not have those protections. Oh, that's, I mean, that's exactly uh, one of the arguments for is that this compound, it's powerful, but there are many other compounds that exist and there's ways to mess it up in a way that um, would result in the kind of standard homebrewer not understanding kind of what they've, what they've done, right? And that could put the kind of public at risk. Um, so it's important to kind of make those considerations and think about that. Yeah, there's a very close analogy, right? I'm not saying that we can identify exactly the molecule that you would make that would be problematic like you can with methanol and distilling. But we can argue that it is a very complex process, right? And it's going to have a lot of rigorous purification and manufacturing kind of concerns um, that are worth considering. All right. I wanted to circle back to this idea of your strain of E. coli. What did you do to your E. coli? Yeah, so we used what's called recombinant DNA technology, right? Which is an idea that you can take the DNA that exists naturally in the mushroom, right? you can modify it slightly to where bacteria can read it, right? Because bacteria and mushrooms are in kind of different branches of the phylogenetic tree. Um, but that doesn't take all that much because DNA, there's still A, T, Cs, and Gs, and everything gets kind of encoded in a very similar fashion. So I take that DNA. Um, I don't physically need the mushroom to do that. Um, these sequences are publicly available, right? And I can just kind of pull the sequence and order it just like you would order a pair of shoes online or something like that. Um, but um, I can then put that onto a plasmid, right, which is a externally replicated piece of DNA. Um, and that will contain my entire pathway. And that pathway is then transformed or that plasmid is put into the bacteria so that the enzyme, so that the bacterial system then recognizes that DNA and starts to create the mRNA and proteins um, in the same, in a similar fashion to the, what the uh, mushroom would do, right? So this is pretty established technology. It, it started in the, I guess, fifties maybe. Um, and today we have all sorts of kind of ability to manipulate this and fine tune the expression levels and the, how much it's expressed and how many copies and when it gets turned on, when it gets turned off all of these types of things, like those manipulations are effectively endless at this stage. So this genetic work that you do with recombinant DNA and plasmids, that is, that is the, the secret starting point, not so secret. From there, you can take whatever cells, yeast, E. coli, and transform them to produce substances that are precious to us as humans. Yeah, in, the recombinant DNA is a very powerful technology. And all of this could be scaled up to factory quantities or possibly done as a homebrew in somebody's dining room. That is, uh, that's, the, that's the interesting part, right? The idea that what this unleashes, right? It allows us to make compounds that naturally exist in mushrooms or trees or petunias, right? We can make all of these, or strawberries, right? We can make all of these compounds 
in kind of a, a central host, right? That we understand how it functions. Um, we don't have to wait for the seeds to germinate and then the like tree to grow for 30 years before it can produce a fruit or anything like that, right? It really just speeds up the process of being able to take advantage of some of these natural products um, that in their kind of naturally occurring source would be very difficult to gain, I guess. Andrew Jones, thank you so much for being a guest on Significant Figures. I'm Viva Horowitz. This is WHCL-FM, Clinton, New York.